Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Tim Farron. Question number one, Mr Deputy Speaker. Mr Deputy Speaker, so this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others in addition to my duties in the House. I will have further such meetings later today. Mr Tim Farrell. Given that homelessness in South Lakeland rose by 85% last year and that uh, average local house prices are 15 times average local incomes, will the Prime Minister act swiftly to prevent compulsory uh, right to buy of shared ownership schemes to ensure that more affordable homes can be built and that they remain affordable? It's precisely for that reason that we want to encourage um, more house building in the areas where there's pressures on, on housing, particularly for young couples who are trying to own their first home, and why we want to encourage shared equity schemes. And as the Deputy Prime Minister and the Chancellor have been saying in recent weeks, it's important, therefore, that we continue with the programme that means that we invest in housing, increase the availability of housing, but also have more imaginative ways, particularly, as I say, of young people owning their home for the first time. Tom Harris. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Can I simply inform the Prime Minister that if for any reason he intends to get in touch with me over the next few weeks. Um, I will actually be on paid paternity leave for two weeks at the, round about the beginning of June. If he tries to phone me at home during that period and I'm not in, I'll probably be at the bank cashing in a baby bond. What plans does the government have further to support new parents? And does it expect cross-party support for such measures this time? Well, my warmest congratulations uh, to my honourable friend. And, of course, the measures that we took, uh, both on paternity leave as well as massive extensions in maternity pay and maternity leave and, of course, baby bonds, are all examples, as with the children's tax credit, of this government's commitment to families and to balancing work and family life. And I'm only sorry they were opposed in their entirety by the party opposite. David Cameron. The, the outgoing chief executive of the NHS said last night that the service was going through a bad patch. Does the Prime Minister agree? In terms of the financial deficits, it's very important we get the hospitals back into surplus. But let's be quite clear about this. And if we look back over the past few years, we see the difference investment and reform has made. Waiting lists have come down by something like 400,000 under this government. And whereas there used to be in 1997 almost 300,000 people waiting 15 months for their operation, there's now no one waiting more than six months. David Cameron. The fact is, the deficit has trebled, wards are being closed, and in my constituency, mental health consultants are being sacked. If everything's going so well, why did he have to sack the chief executive? Nigel Crisp gave in his statement yesterday the reasons why he stood down. However, let me just say, he was a superb public servant who in the past few years has overseen a transformation of the health service. And let me just tell him on deficits, incidentally. First of all, let us just get this in context. The deficit is less than 1% of the annual bill of the National Health Service. But the most important thing is that 50% of the deficit is in 6% of the trusts. 
and it's true that in his area there is a substantial financial deficit. Yes, but there's also been massive real-term increases in the amount of money going in, money that he voted against. And therefore, what we have to have is proper systems of financial transparency. We are putting a huge investment in, but it's for local hospital organisations to make sure that they balance the books, and in fact, the majority of them are. David Cameron. But the Prime Minister tries to fudge the issue of whether Sir Nigel was sacked. But last night, last night, Sir Nigel said he'd wanted to stay at least another year, and he, went, he wanted to leave when things were on the up something I'm sure the Prime Minister feels some sympathy with. <laughs> now, let me tell you what the Chief Executive also said. He said the structural problems are getting worse. He said managers are under less pressure to get the finances right, and financial problems are now being revealed. What responsibility do ministers take for these things? Yeah. Ministers are responsible. But both Sir Nigel and ministers can be extremely proud of the following achievements in the National Health Service. Well, I know honourable members opposite don't want to hear the fact that there are 80,000 more nurses in the National Health Service, 30,000 more doctors, that waiting for cataract operations is down from two years to three months, that now no one waits for heart operations more than three months. Cancer deaths are down by 14% saving 43,000 lives, deaths from heart disease, down 30%, saving 83,000 lives. So, yes, of course there are problems within our National Health Service, like any healthcare system in the world. But if we compare today and the levels, not just of funding, but achievement, with 1997, the National Health Service today, in part thanks to what Sir Nigel has done, the issue today is how we improve it, not what it used to be in 1997, which is whether we can save it. But in public, he gives us these lists of success. In private, he knows it's going wrong, and he's sacking the chief executive. Isn't this just the latest example of mismanagement in the NHS? They set up the primary care trust, now they're scrapping half of them. They introduced the strategic health authorities, now most of them are going. They've poured money into the NHS, but there's an £800 million deficit, and the outgoing chief executive said things are getting worse, not better. When will ministers take responsibility for their failures instead of seeking to blame others? Sir Nigel certainly did not say the National Health Service is getting worse, not better. Indeed, the National Health Service, on any basis, as every independent report has shown, is indeed getting better. And the reason I read out the achievements of the past few years is because it used to be the case that literally hundreds of thousands of people waited over a year on an inpatient waiting list. No one does today. It used to be the case that waiting lists went up every single year. They've fallen by almost half a million in the last five or six years. And it's just today when we announce at Barts the largest scheme that is going to mean fantastic opportunities for patients and clinicians right throughout that part of London. Every penny piece was opposed by him and the party opposite. So when he says the National Health Service has challenges and issues, of course it does. But no one believes the National Health Service is not better today than it was eight or nine years ago. And that is a result not just of the investment and reform, but a result of the fact that when he was still advocating the patient's passport to take money out of the NHS, this side has stood by the NHS, stood by its values, stood by its principles, and will make it better still. Gordon Banks. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that Monday's report by the Sustainable Development Commission 
highlights clearly the way forward for the UK's energy demand is through even greater expansion of renewables and not through a new range of nuclear generation facilities, which the Commission highlighted have waste, cost, security, efficiency and inflexibility questions still to be answered. Well, I agree with him in part. Uh, <laughs> um, well, the part I agree with is that we certainly do need to make sure that renewable energy forms a larger part of our energy mix, and that's what we're committed to. I mean, over the past few years, we've seen an extension in the amount of renewable energy. We've got very stringent targets for the expansion of renewable energy um, in the next few years. But I have to say to my old friend, I still think there is a major challenge, and this is what the Energy Review will answer in the next few months, as to whether we can really make sure we meet both our energy needs and our environmental uh, targets without nuclear power in the mix. Now, that is something that we will obviously have to consider over these past few months, but let me just make one thing clear. When the Sustainable Development Commission says, is nuclear power the answer? No one has ever said it is the whole of the answer. The question is whether it's part of the answer as part of a sensible and balanced energy mix. So, me as Campbell. But fo following upon that answer, can the Prime Minister tell us why the government has yet to implement many of the low-carbon solutions suggested in the Energy White Paper of 2003. Yeah. Well, first of all, I should say uh, congratulations to the Right Honourable Gentleman. Uh, and we actually are doing many of those things which are low-carbon solutions. For example, in building regulations, even though there is now a debate, should we go further, the actual energy efficiency has improved something like 40% for new buildings. There's the renewable energy I was just talking about a moment or two ago. Um, there's all the issues to do uh, with energy efficiency, where again the government is investing a large sum of money. Our government is investing around about £600 million this year in various forms of clean technology. Um, but of course there are tremendous challenges as our economy grows, but as he knows, we will be one of the very few countries in the world to meet their Kyoto targets. So, Campbell. I thank the Prime Minister for his congratulations. But following upon that, he will know that there are increasing doubts about the ability of the government to meet the target by 2010 of a 20% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions. The Department of Environment says we must. The Department of Trade and Industry says we can't. Who's right and who's going to win? We will publish in the next few months. Um, our proposals to make sure we can, we can attain that 20% target. But, however, he's absolutely right in saying it's incredibly challenging um, because uh, even though it is the case that the economy has been growing far faster than the level of emissions, nonetheless, it is the case that it's going to be highly challenging to meet that target. But I don't think that should diminish our pride as a country in having met our Kyoto targets, which were substantial, and also in the leadership role that this country is playing around the world in tackling climate change. And as he will know, and, and it's very obvious, in the end, the single biggest thing we can do, apart from obviously giving leadership here in this country, is to make sure in international terms, particularly America, China and India, are all working together. John Mann, question number two. I cannot tell my honourable friend exactly how many occasions solicitors' costs have been partially refused due to breach of Regulation 4, uh, but it is the case that we have been able to save substantial sums of money by making sure the regulation is implemented. Mr John Mann. Mr Deputy Speaker, there is a, a feeding frenzy at the moment over miners and textile workers' deafness claims, which is even worse than the previous double-charging scandal, in this case with up to six unnecessary deductions by solicitors and the UDM. 
as Capita tells me that the Government has rightly refused to pay solicitors' costs in over a thousand of these cases. Will the Prime Minister ask the Lord Chancellor to sort out with the Law Society and with Cabinet colleagues how best to claw back costs in every one of these cases and how to ensure that money wrong, wrongly deducted is returned to both miners and textile workers? Well, I think in respect of the particular point that my honourable friend makes, I understand the issue is being considered by the courts in an appeal due to be heard on the, the 19th of, of June. Um, but the general point that my honourable friend makes is absolutely right, and that is why my honourable friend, the Minister for Energy, has worked with the Law Society to see that solicitors who have unfairly taken a proportion of miners' compensation repay the money. Many have returned payments, and the Law Society has recently again urged those who have not to do so. I know, however, my honourable friend would also agree that over these past few years, the amount of money that we have managed to pay out to former miners has been enormous, around about £3 billion, and it is one way that this Labour government has been able to repay the debt of gratitude to those people who have worked in such difficult and dangerous conditions for so long in order to supply the energy needs of this country. David the Prime Minister empathise and sympathise with uh, my constituents who are constantly battling against applications to cite mobile phone masks in their streets, outside their houses and outside schools. If he is sympathetic, why did his government kill the bill on Friday last which would have helped deal with this matter? Because there's obviously got to be a balance between people's objectives and making sure that we get the facilities that we need. And we do constantly keep under review the issue as to whether it is safe or not. But I have to say, as far as I'm aware, the evidence points very clearly and surely to the fact that it is. Mr Harry Cohen. Number four. We are working with the Iraqi government at the highest level to investigate all allegations and bring to justice any individuals involved in human rights abuses. Mr. Harry Cohen. There were another 18 grisly murders on a minibus this morning. Did, uh, has the Prime Minister taken into account the comments of John Pace, until recently the head of human rights, UN's human rights for Iraq, that most of the killings in Baghdad are done by agents of the Ministry of the Interior, and that that ministry is a rogue element in the government? The uh, Commander General uh, Casey, who is really running Iraq, uh, says complacently and perhaps deliberately that this is just a long-term problem. Surely British troops were not sent to fight and die for this desk-wad's perversion of democracy? No, they, they certainly weren't. But I have to say to my honourable friend that the very reason why these issues are being investigated is because of our insistence that they should be investigated. A very different situation than that that obtained under Saddam Hussein where there was no investigation and where it was indeed the policy of the government uh, to kill and abuse and torture people. And the second thing is, when he asks why are our troops there, our troops are there for a very simple reason. They're there under a UN mandate with the consent of the first ever democratically elected Iraqi government and they're there to allow the wishes and will of 11 million Iraqis who voted in, a, in an election for the first time to have the democracy they want. That's why they're there. James Brokenshaw. Yeah. Yeah. Mr Deputy Speaker, Raynham in my constituency has been identified as a site to sift, screen and process rubble and other debris in the event of a serious terrorist attack in the capital. Whilst I accept and recognise the essential need to have these sorts of plans in place, would he recognise 
that it is not going to assist the redevelopment and regeneration of this part of the Thames Gateway if this use is retained and that a review is needed. Yeah. Yeah. I hope he understands for obvious reasons. I don't know about the uh, particular application in his area. I'm happy to look into it and I will correspond with him about it. Barbara Follett. Mr Deputy Speaker, with the United Kingdom currently 51st on the Women's Representation League table, would my right honourable friend agree with me that more needs to be done to get more women into this House, and particularly Labour women? And would he do all that he can to facilitate this? Well, I agree entirely with my honourable friend. I mean, I think we can be, again, very proud of what has been achieved uh, since 1997, particularly on this side of the House, with the additional representation of, of women. But we recognise, and I hope all parties do, we need to do much more. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. The drought in East Africa threatens millions of people with famine and starvation. We welcome the government's rapid response and the announcement of the extra money uh, that the Minister has made. What does the Prime Minister think are the practical obstacles now standing in the way of getting food and water to those in need? First of all, um, it is correct that the UK, I think after the US, is the second largest donor. And it's sometimes worth just pointing out um, the contribution both us and our main ally make um, to, to um, overseas aid. The main obstacles are obviously those of the difficulties of infrastructure and, and transport, and that's why we're working very hard on making sure that the money that we give is properly used in order not just to, to, to buy what is necessary, but then to facilitate its transport. David Cameron. The Prime Minister would agree that in Africa, all too often, drought leads to starvation because of the absence of development and the presence of corruption. We must help developing countries to trade their way out of poverty. And with that in mind, will it be possible to use the G6 talks this weekend to ensure that trade talks do go forward with the needs of Africa at their forefront? Well, they sh certainly should do. I mean, there's the G6 talks that are happening, but also we uh, are honoured and delighted to have in this country for a state visit of President Lula of Brazil. Um, and Brazil obviously occupies a very, very important position in the world trade talks as part of the G20 group of nations. And the main um, area of discussion that I will have with President Lula tomorrow will be over whether it is possible to get a far more ambitious plan put together for these trade talks. That should obviously include, since it's supposed to be a development round, a specific package for Africa in the very poorest countries. But I think it would be far easier if that package were located in a general ambitious trade round that took down trade barriers right around the world. And that would obviously be of advantage to the poorest African countries, but in addition, it would be of advantage to countries like Brazil and countries like Britain. Dawn Butler. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that it's important that today be an International Women's Day, that it's firmly marked on the calendar, and that we ensure that young people are taught about International Women's Day, and that we also have a celebration? And although there'll be more people on the Labour Party side of the House with more women being in Parliament, being part of that celebration, that we also look forward to the opposition making sure that there's further gender e equality in this House. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm not actually... In, I'm, not in, in, I'm not in general in favour of greater numbers of Conservative MPs, but certainly a greater balance between men and women would be a good idea. Geoffrey Cox. Does the Prime Minister still believe, as he told West Country farming communities in the midst of the foot and mouth crisis, that supermarkets pretty much have them in an arm lock? And if he does still believe that, 
Would he support the call of the Federation of Small Businesses yesterday yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. for an investigation into the practices of supermarkets by the Competition Commission? Yeah. Well, I haven't had an opportunity to uh, study that recommendation, but I do sympathise, and it's the reason why we established the code of practice for supermarkets. I do sympathise very much with the position uh, that farmers find themselves in, particularly when they're trying to engage in a massive restructuring of their own businesses. Um, and in the meetings I've had in the past few months, we are looking carefully at what we can do in order to respond to that concern. Now, obviously, that's got to be consistent with the interests of consumers as well. Um, but the code of practice is there. It, it should be adhered to. I know there are many parts of the farming community who believe that it's being broken. Uh, we want to look at that very carefully. And if it is necessary, we will take further action. Madeleine Moon. <laughs> Women in my constituency are facing violence on a regular basis from partners who abuse them. They are forced into refuges, and the Bridge End Refuge is under financial crisis. It needs additional funding to help find homes for women and to give them the opportunities to find stability for themselves and their families. <coughs> Would the Prime Minister look at finding ways to support women who experience violence so that they aren't faced with homelessness or fear and having to remain at home? Well, I, I obviously can't, and if my own friend forgives me, we won't comment on the particular funding of, of the service in her area, but the general point she makes is absolutely right. It's the reason why we are putting a great deal of money into supporting domestic violence, why we've established domestic violence courts, and why there is, I think, a real sense that women are more willing and able to come forward now and report domestic violence and certainly the police and the courts treat it a lot more seriously and I hope as we roll out domestic violence courts right across the country then these benefits will be more widely spread. Sir Peter Tapsell. Now that the Prime Minister has used up all mortal excuses for his folly in invading Iraq and uh, is uh, relying uh, on his judgment on divine guidance, uh, a, a factor which oddly was omitted from the dodgy dossier. <laughs> Which archangel is now beckoning him towards southern Afghanistan? Um, well, <laughs> right. So what's the answer? Uh, uh, the, uh, I tell him exactly what, what makes me committed to British troops in Afghanistan. On September the 11th, there was the worst terrorist act this world has ever seen. 3,000 people died. It was done out of Afghanistan, run by Al-Qaeda, based in Afghanistan, supported by the Taliban. I am proud of the part we played in removing the Taliban regime. I am proud of the fact that 6 million Iraqi, uh, Afghans got the chance to vote. Yes, and 12 million Iraqis too. And I would have thought that everyone, whatever their belief or faith, would stand up for democracy against terrorism. John Robertson. 
Honourable Friend is concerned, as I am, with the unbalanced and misrepresentation of reports on the energy debate, and does he agree with me that there has to be a balanced energy debate on a balanced energy policy? I entirely agree with my honourable friend. And incidentally, what, what is important is that although, as he rightly implies, there have been voices very strongly against nuclear power in the last few days, there are also many people, including, for example, the Energy Research Centre, that have reported recently and said that they believe it is important that nuclear power is part of the energy mix. And all I think is that we need to have a clear-sighted debate on the energy security needs of our country in a, in a world in which there is increasingly uh, great difficulty over the security of energy supply, and a hard-headed look, not simply at what we want to have happen in relation to greenhouse gas emissions, but what practically could be done in order to reduce them, and on that basis take the decisions um, necessary. But I think it is important, as he rightly says, to recognise there are many very sensible people who have looked at this issue over a significant period of time who do believe nuclear power should be part of the mix. To Martin Horwood. Given the, government's, given the government's newfound interest in localism and the fact that uh, children's hospital services in Cheltenham are becoming less local, our ambulance trust, less local, our police force, less local, our primary care trust, less local, our fire control centre, less local, our planning powers, less local, and even our local authority, less local. Does the government have any plans to make anything at all in my constituency more local, or is it just saying one thing and doing the precise opposite? Uh, I don't agree with him, for example, on the police, that necessarily the police become less local. If at the same time as restructuring forces, it's combined with a greater emphasis on community policing, since most people actually do not regard their, the police in their area as part of some overall police authority. They actually look at the local service. Likewise, if I may say so, with schools or hospitals or healthcare services, people actually look at their local ward and local community uh, beyond the structures that politicians often talk about, but which often don't mean a great deal to people. Chris Mullin. Is my uh, right honourable friend aware that in Sunderland we have uh, an excellent system of tertiary education which has been painstakingly built up over the last 20 years or so and there is a fear that foundation schools uh, will demand their own sixth forms, thereby undermining uh, what has been achieved. What can my right honourable friend say to reassure the City of Sunderland College uh, and others that this uh, will not happen? First of all, I think that the, um, the, the provision of education in Sunderland has benefited enormously, as I know my honourable friend would accept, from what the government has done over the past few years. And also, the sixth form college has, has been a success too. Um, I, so far, and my belief is so far from undermining that success, I very much hope that the proposals in the school's white paper and the education bill will assist that process. I mean, after all, we've made great progress in our schools in the past eight or nine years. It's important we build on that progress, and that's the purpose of the bill. Bill Cash. Will the, will the Prime Minister accept that the, the picture that he painted of the health service simply does not apply in my constituency? In the, fir in the first place, uh, in the extraordinary elevation of Sir Nigel Christ to a peerage uh, for what appears to have been a pretty appalling record. Will he accept, and I see the, uh, all the primary care trust chairmen this afternoon uh, from Staffordshire, that as regards the 
Staffordshire General Hospital, there is uproar about hygiene and cleanliness. There is an £18 million deficit in North Staffordshire, and the ambulance service merger is deeply unpopular. What I'm saying to the uh, Honourable Gentleman is that any sense of balance about the picture in the National Health Service today, of course there are issues, there are major challenges. MRSA is one. Uh, the financial deficits continuing at the moment is another. But I think if you were to talk to the people inside the National Health Service in his area, they would accept that there has nonetheless been immense progress over the past few years in his own constituency. There used to be many people, hundreds of them, waiting months and months and months for operations that now they have maximum waiting times far below anything that we inherited in 1997. There have been huge real-term increases in funding, but in the end, whatever amount of money we put into the National Health Service, there's got to be proper financial transparency, and the new system being introduced is what is exposing the financial deficits and the financial transparency in the Health Service. It has to be dealt with. But it's being dealt with in the context of a National Health Service improving year by year. Mr. Steve McCabe. Mr. Deputy Speaker, can I give a, a general welcome to the proposals to improve youth services? I've been uh, struck when uh, talking to constituents in Hall Green by how many people favour the idea of some kind of national youth volunteer service. When will this be up and running, and how do I get whole green youngsters involved? My honourable friend is absolutely right. As a result of the work of the Russell Commission, um, the charity set up to implement the Russell recommendations will be launched in early May, with the first round of volunteering opportunities becoming available in the summer. And we've allocated somewhere in the region of £100 million for this, and this will allow literally thousands of young people to take part in youth volunteering. Um, and I think that is a very, very good way. And I don't think it's possible to go back to the old days of national service, but I do think it is very possible to provide young people with the opportunity of putting something back into the community, gaining some greater experience um, of different walks and different sides of life. And I think this programme, as I say, building on the work of the Russell Commission, will be very exciting, and I'm sure in his constituency and others, people will take advantage of it. Alex Salmon. Has the uh, Prime Minister seen the front-page story in the Scotsman newspaper today? which carries the allegation that the reason for allowing cover-up and criminality in the presentation of fingerprint evidence in Scotland was to protect the forensic evidence used to secure the Lockerbie conviction. Now, given that this case, the McKee case, has already resulted in a wrongful conviction of murder, nine years of personal anguish for the police officer whose fingerprints were wrongfully identified, and a cloud of suspicion that now hangs over the Scottish Criminal Record Office, Will the Prime Minister join those, former Solicitor Generals, Lord Advocates and every opposition party in Scotland who are calling for an independent judicial inquiry so that justice can be seen to be done on this issue? Before I respond to that, I should look carefully at the story that is on the front page of the Scotsman. I haven't seen it.